0: You're listening to Tech versus Media with Richard Walpert. On today's episode of Tech versus Media, we're going to be looking at what it's like to now program content for a global audience, which is what all the entertainment companies are having to do in this world of streaming. You're not talking about just the 48 contiguous United States. You're not talking about just the Western Hemisphere. You're talking about the entire world is receiving content at the exact same time. Today, we'll be speaking with Christy Haburger, EVP and Chief Inclusion Officer at Warner Media, about how they're tackling this challenge on a global basis. On today's episode of Tech versus Media. The following program is brought to you in living color. We have a big show for you tonight, but there's one more little thing. Today, Apple is. You've got mail. You know that sound? It's time for another episode of Tech versus Media. I'm Richard Walper, your host. I've been on both sides of technology and entertainment for the last 36 years. Today's guest is Christy Hauberger. She's been named as one of the most important people in the entertainment industry by Cable Facts. She led the Latina division of Creative Artists Agency for close to 20 years. She's currently the Executive Vice President and Chief Enterprise Inclusion Officer at WarnerMedia. She's also the Head of Marketing and Communications. So we're going to do Rapid Fire 10 first. First one, movie geek or data geek?
1: Oh, movie geek.
0: But you struggle? Mm.
1: I struggle because I actually really love data. And okay. I think it's sort of like a, a, a ref, left brain, right brain kind of thing. I mean, the, the, it's like head and heart. So I, I love what I do because we use a lot of data to think about movies.
0: Got it. Which of your accomplishments are you most proud of?
1: You know, I'm most proud of being a good person and I hope an empathetic leader.
0: Day at the beach or day hiking in the mountains?
1: The great thing about LA is you can do both in the same day. But I live in Runyon Canyon and I love going to the beach. So all of the
0: above. Okay. Is it true you're a producer of the film Spanglish? That is true. Okay. Dogs or cats?
1: Oh, dogs.
0: If you could do anything you wanted tomorrow, including time travel, so you can go anywhere, what would you do?
1: I'm reading a really great book about Texas history and I would love to be in like my home state when it was like going through all of its own identity crises when it became sort of independent from Mexico. And just, I I, I love history and I'd love to find a, a spot, a great perch to look at some of this stuff real time.
0: Got it. What do you think is the most impactful technology out there right now that's helping with inclusion?
1: For me, personally, it's a flat iron, you know, for my hair. (laughs) (laughs) That's really impactful for me personally in diversity. Um, Let's see. I mean, I think, you know, I would say that the ability of anyone to become a storyteller with their phone, that is a profound shift and democratizes access to storytelling.
0: What are your three favorite movies?
1: So I went to do the movie Spanglish because I loved the movies of James L. Brooks. And so I would say that, you know, among my top three are Terms of Endearment, Mm -hmm. As Good As It Gets, and Broadcast News. Those three films caused me to move my entire life with no motion picture experience to Los Angeles.
0: What movie, either present last 10, 15 years, do you think has been the most impactful for the type of work you are focused on?
1: I think, you know, probably either Black Panther or Crazy Rich Asians, not because they certainly were able to attract the audiences that were portrayed on screen, but because the majority of the audiences did not match the characters on screen. It caused people to think, oh, wait, you mean people want to see stories that don't look exactly like them? That, that was a huge shift because I think... We tend to market and program often in the boxes we grew up in. And movies like that show us that actually human beings are curious about a whole range of things.
0: Great. And if you could have dinner with any three people, living or not, who would they be?
1: You know, I went to South Africa a few years ago, and I'm fascinated by Nelson Mandela and living a life of grace and mm-hmm. forgiveness and transcending so many other things. So I would put him on the list. I would say I love... Like, not to say that you're not gonna be my favorite podcast host, but like Ira Glass from This American Life, you know, who does these like really interesting interviews. And then a good friend who could, you know, maybe Michelle Kidley so she could pinch me throughout to believe it's real.
0: I see. One thing that came up, you talked about Crazy Rich Asians and Black Panther. And one of the quotes I read from you is that people have to remember we're programming for seven billion people worldwide now, not just in the US, right? Mm-hmm. So how does that affect what you're doing at Warner Media? And I do want to get into your title and what you specifically do there, but since you brought this up in Rapid Fire 10, how are you helping Warner Media think about we're making movies for seven billion people, not the 400 million in the United States or the how many of them in North America, but the 7 billion people worldwide, how does that affect what you're doing at Warner Media?
1: Well, I think there are, it affects us in a number of ways, right? One is given the shift to streaming and the desire to have a direct sort of retail relationship with consumers as opposed to a wholesale relationship. So historically, we'd all, you know, media companies were in the wholesale business, right? We created content and we sold it to a U.S. network and then we sold it to a network in Indonesia and in Peru. And we were able to really primarily serve an audience that was U.S. based. And now we have to actually compete for eyeballs that are you know in completely different parts of the world, but we have to be able to deliver them and deliver a product to them that they find enough value in to pay for every month, and that's just a very different approach. And so, when you recognize, and I think this is this shouldn't be shocking to anyone, but most of the world is shh, don't scare anyone is not Caucasian, and the idea that everybody wants to see. A mostly Caucasian view of heroism, right? The fact that, I mean, I I think about like we're, you know, we're in the, we have DC and we're in the superhero business, right? Right, And the fact that we're actually creating our first Latino superheroes right now. And in some ways, are we telling, you know, a huge part of the world we don't think you're capable of greatness, you know, because you've never seen heroism that looks like you? Not in the way that we sort of shape culture.
0: That's a great answer. So let's talk about your role at Warner Media. And I remember you saying that you didn't think anybody would offer you something as interesting as what you were doing at CAA. I think you said, even publicly, you turned the job down the first time. <laughs> You've got a very big title. I don't think I've heard this one before. Chief Enterprise Inclusion Officer. And also you said adding communications overall. So that's like a seven-letter acronym if we wanted to put it together
1: yeah it doesn't spell anything fun though so i don't do it that way but you know we've actually shifted you know from enterprise inclusion which we we had that as a title to really talk about like this is actually enterprise wide this is not just the workforce this is about the stories we tell this is about the people who get to tell stories right and taking an enterprise wide view of that but we also just now call it EI, like equity and inclusion, because we think that equity and inclusion are going to be huge competitive advantages for us. I, I think if you talk to anybody, not only in media companies or in tech companies or in, in other kinds of companies, and you ask people, like, is diversity really important to you? And they would say, yes, it's a key, key priority, hugely important to us. But when you ask them, so great, what's your plan? And most people say, you know, we're going to try and do a little bit better right and that was what people would would offer up as their plan and can you imagine presenting you know here's our KPIs and one of them is we're going to do a little bit better like that's just not a metric of success and so one of the things we're trying to do is bring the level of rigor and analytics that you would expect in any other part of our business to the idea of of equity and inclusion and we're doing so not because we think this is the right thing to do or we have a we do i mean listen we believe we have a moral obligation to reflect the audiences we serve but the urgency comes from this is going to be how we win and that for me is is a really really exciting moment and was like the only thing that could take me out of what was a really good Job, you know, <laughs> I think about my 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 parents would like this is a really good job because good pay, good benefits. You know, I get to do fun stuff and and impactful work.
0: And I think you have, and we'll talk about that in your CA experience in a bit. But so you've been at Warner Media now just a little over two years, right, Chrissy? Mm-hmm. One of the things a lot of people may not understand, and I understand most of it. It still gets confusing, right? Warner Media is a company that was started by, I think it was Jack Warner originally, or the Warner Brothers, obviously, is the original name of the company. But it's now been broken up and it's also acquired a bunch of things. Like Warner Music is not part of Warner Media, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah. But
0: Warner Media owns HBO.
1: That is true, too.
0: So, can you, for our listeners, can you describe just how broad the purview is of Warner Media, the brand, just some of the brands that are part of Warner Media?
1: People typically know the brands more than the parent, right? So people know HBO. We we have Warner Brothers, obviously, the film and television studio. We also have a games business that's considerable. And we have a fantastic range of cable television networks, such as TNT and TBS and CNN, who are three of the top, five most popular most watched networks right and sure. then we have a whole huge business in sports you know we have Turner sports we have other networks like TMC we mm-hmm. have everything from digital platforms like Rooster Teeth and collection of media platforms that that attract a really wide range of audiences and then beyond that we operate networks in other you know, Cartoon Network, right, is a sure. massive presence in, in lots and lots of countries. And I think the the challenge is now, how do we take that experience and that reach and that the equity that we've built with consumers and serve it to them more directly? And that's the transition we're in the middle of.
0: And is one of the issues, I asked this out of true curiosity, how to get consumers to know the umbrella of all the brands because it gives you more credibility with the consumer? Or is that just too difficult of a task?
1: It's both. I mean, one of the things that's kind of great about having like a a cartoon network and knowing that all of this great animation is going to be on HBO Max, which has got a very different brand. You sort of think about the, the platform of HBO Max, and you've got a lot of doorways, right? If you're really into Animation and adult animation, right? You kind of go in through the the appeal of a Rick and Morty or something else, but then you're like, oh, look, there's old South, there's great South Park on here, and th- you know, there's lots of other animated properties for you. And while the service is branded HBO Max, you recognize all the posters, you recognize all the movies because you're like, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I I saw that because these were big movies in our culture, and so that is, I think, a distinct advantage is sort of having that. Incredible IP and that familiarity for consumers is hopefully gonna be a huge advantage as we move forward. And, and
0: the flagship, is it fair to say the flagship right now, for sure at least, of streaming services for the Warner Media group of companies is HBO Max?
1: Yes. Yes. And I think it's very early days because what we've seen thus far is that our growth. And which has been, you know, considerable, you know, a couple million people each quarter in, and we're only in the U.S. Very so impressive, far. Yeah. We're only in the U.S. So we just launched in Latin America and in the tail end of the last quarter. And so, you know, what is the natural ceiling for Sure. Are consumers going to subscribe to three services, five services, ten, you know, and then you're kind of back to is someone going to make another cable button. I mean, it's a really, yeah. it's, a, it's a fascinating moment, I think.
0: It is, it is. Christy, I've heard you talk a lot about how WarnerMedia has changed a lot over the last few years, and not just about diversity, but WarnerMedia has gone from a wholesaler to a direct-to-consumer company. And that's a huge topic I want to dive in on, right? Because as a wholesaler, you sold your movies to maybe other studios or distribution through theaters. And now with HBO Max, you have a direct-to-consumer product that you're trying to take worldwide. So can we talk about how that's working with streaming? How that's changing the entire programming perspective at Warner Media?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is this is really the the question for media and entertainment companies, right? Generally, which is how do you become now? Obviously, Netflix was originally a DVD business, but in some ways a retail business, right? They had direct consumer relationships. They did. It's a very different set of muscles, right? Just like think about data analytics, right? Even just you're hiring different kinds of people. And one of the things that is remarkable is that even though, you know, in like the broadcast TV network, you used to get overnight ratings, you would kind of have a directional sense of how your work performed. But getting graded by the hour, by specific demographics, by specific regions, by specific age groups, right? It's just a whole nother level of accountability.
0: Sure. Sure. And this data is real, unlike Nielsen, which was a guess, right? This data is, is real. Yeah,
1: and, and and I think, you know, think about like how much of our business has been built off of a sampling extrapolation. Exactly. I mean, huge financial decisions exactly. worth tens of millions of dollars every night made based on an extrapolation of a sample set. a
0: small number of random households. Yeah.
1: Yeah. By the way, I I always wanted to find a Nielsen house. I never met one. Have you I met never one? one? You know? In, no. You know, I've yet to meet one in the wild. I would love to see one. Like, (laughs) (laughs) there's another thing that's also just real accountability, which is that unlike, I mean, it's 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 very hard for me and maybe my age group, but young people will turn this stuff off in a minute. Oh yeah, I got to win you back every month. Yeah, and the idea that I have to like fight and win your loyalty, it actually is making us better as storytellers. I think because. There's sort of this thing that not only accountability, but I think that diversity and inclusion, like bringing different voices in drives so much innovation. And if I'm trying to win your money every month and I'm trying to win your time every month, if you know, there's 500 and something scripted shows available right now, if I don't show you something you haven't seen before, I'm not going to get your attention. Like I've got to continually and relentlessly innovate just to keep the share I've got, much less grow it. And so I assume it's similar in tech, right?
0: Oh, it's very similar in tech. I mean, I remember when I was at Disney in 98 and we were trying to sell advertising to American Express and they said, how many people do you think will click on the ad, the banner ad, right? And I was like, probably two at the time, it was like two to 4%. And they're like, so only 2 to 4% of the people will click on the banner? That's not very good. We don't think we want to advertise. And I said, well, how many people clicked on your banner on your ad on TV last night? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, how many people <laughs> that watched your TV commercial actually came to your website? Well, we have no idea. And how much did you spend? Right. We spend millions, millions on that. <laughs> right. But it was just a new way of thinking that they just they couldn't grasp it. And yeah. it still, it surprises me it's taken this long for the traditional 30-second commercial to kind of die. I feel it's dying a very slow, painful death in its own evolutionary way. It's trying to hang on for dear life, right?
1: But so much of, of again, we kind of program in the boxes we grew up in. Yeah. And it's easier to continue to make that than sort of innovate on the genre, and inertia has a profound effect on so many things. And it's like, well, we've been doing it this way, and nobody got fired for continuing to do it this exactly. way, so let's keep doing it this way.
0: When I was at Apple, that was one of our biggest challenges. is Nobody was getting fired for buying IBM PCs, and people were taking a mm. risk if they bought Macintosh. And that was a mm-hmm. huge challenge, even back then with technology. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back with Christy... We're gonna learn how now anybody with a phone can be a storyteller, no matter what background you're from, how film reaches farther than most people really understand, and a great example of how it affected Malala Yousafzai, watching the show Ugly Betty from a small village in Pakistan, and a little bit about how when Christy calls Salma she gets a call back, and if I were to ever call Salma which I can't, because I don't have her phone number, she might call the police. We'll be right back. I often say on my show, I'm having discussions with the people that you know and the people that you should know. The same can be true of a law firm. One law firm you should know about, an LA-based law firm, is Stubbs Alderton Markley's. I've known Scott Alderton for almost 20 years, and I've used his firm for not only my personal work, but for HelloTech and other companies that I've been involved with. They specialize in technology and media, the topics that we discuss in the show. If you're looking for a law firm that will pay attention to you at a reasonable price, please reach out to Stubbs Alderton. You can send Scott an email. It's S Alderton at Stubbsalderton.com. And if you need help spelling that email address, just go to the show notes for today's episode. There'll be a direct link you can click on to email Scott. I highly recommend Stubbs Alderton Markleys. Bullhorn brings to podcasting what color brought to television. It makes podcasting a rich, immersive experience. With Bullhorn, you don't just listen to shows, You interact with them. Bullhorn lets content creators share live videos, chat with the audience and take questions, post polls, take call ins, share images, and more. If you want to experience what podcasting can be and should be, download the Bullhorn podcasting app today at bullhorn.fm. Stop listening, start interacting. So one of my first questions in Rapid Fire Ten was movie geek or data geek, and you you, mm. you quinged a little, but then you said movie geek, but you said you love data, and I want to talk a little bit about the the time you spent at CAA because you started a database there specifically to try and promote people of color, Latino community, female, yeah. those that weren't getting work. If my research right, when you started, there were. About twenty three people in that. How does a middle aged white guy refer to this? Do I say?
1: You can say people of color or people
0: of color covers it?
1: Yeah, that's fine. Yeah.
0: And then by the time you left, there were over five hundred that you represented at CAA.
1: Yeah, that was that's true.
0: And you used tech to prove that that was a good business decision in a good in addition to what you felt was the right thing to do. Is that fair?
1: You know, in our business, as in a lot of industries, right. There was a lot of conventional wisdom that was a lot more convention than wisdom, right? I'll give you an example. There was sort of this hoary old canard in, in entertainment that said, films that are top-lined by women, meaning like female protagonists, don't perform as well. And everyone had been inculcated with this idea. And I said, but but is that true, right? Is it true <laughs> So we had built this database.
0: Was this the writer's database or different?
1: No, this is a different one. I love databases. Okay. <laughs> I, loved I love these things because I think you can see bias in the system, right? When you see aggregations and clusters that don't really make any sense. Sure. And one of the things, like the, the female protagonist question, well, I just, no one had asked, is it really true? Everyone had sort of accepted this as truth. And so, you know, hundreds of motion pictures over many years. And what we did is we bucketed them by budget because people would say, well, I worked on this rom-com and, you know, that movie, which had a female protagonist, didn't make as much money as this big action movie top-lined by a guy. Well, those are not like things in any other way. Apples
0: to oranges, yeah.
1: Apples to oranges. And so it turns out that when you you normed for budget size, there was no difference. In fact, there was a slight overperformance of, so things, you know, the, the 50 films in the 30 to $50 million budget range, only a third of them were female protagonists, so some of the data gets smaller, but directionally, they all performed as well or slightly better. And I have a theory, which is that people because they believed that it was riskier to make a movie with a female protagonist, that in some ways they were more focused on making sure it was good because everyone was sort of concerned about this and maybe they put extra care into it, who knows. But when you get to an action movie and you go to like a Wonder Woman or a Mad Max, you know, with Charlie Starr, like these are action movies. And when you get to that budget level, they perform as well or better but what we found that was really fascinating was that this traditional view of female protagonists don't perform as well, you know, because people had their own anecdotal you know view of it, or just someone had told them that and they they believed it. It just it just wasn't true. And likewise, one of the things that we found again in the data set around
0: you had a data scientist working for you at CAA, correct? Yes,
1: we had like three. Yeah, I for would, how and long? That was how, great. When did that start? That was in probably 2015. But the the funny thing was is that we happened to hire two data scientists who were Latino and I was like, "Okay, you guys don't even tell anyone else you work here <laughs> and you're going to do this with me." And so <laughs> they were really they were so down, they were really great. But one of the things that that was also fascinating was that people thought it was really risky to make a movie with non-white characters. Well, what we were able to show is that What's really risky is to make a movie with all-white characters. Mm-hmm. And again, when you norm it for genre and for budget size, right. when you make a movie that is, you know, you, if you spend more than, I think, I don't know, I'm going to say it was $80 million. When you spend not more than $80 million, you better have a diverse cast because the non-white audience, who is is 47% of the U.S. box office, for example. right when they don't feel invited into the movie because you don't have the marketing assets or the talent to really promote that movie or in social, et cetera, to bring in an audience. When you have a cast that looks roughly very similar or similar demographics, they tend to have a duplicative audience in social. And when you have a diverse cast, you end up with incremental audience opportunity. If that makes any sense. No, so it makes a lot of sense. I love using data to try and find the holes in the thinking. And data is great for that because it doesn't have an opinion, you know, and it doesn't have an emotion. Now, how, what you choose to look at does. Right. But I find it to be data very, very powerful in overcoming bias.
0: So just before we started today, I'll out you on this. You said, I'm not really a tech person, so be easy on me. Yes. And the name of the podcast, Christy, is Tech Versus Media, Convergence or Clash. I think mm-hmm. in your case, it's tech enables media. In that yes. all of this data that you've done, and I, I think referencing the study you just did, what I read, it was about 600 films at roughly $100 million. And you showed that they did as well or better as you just said. So you are a tech person. You consider yourself a data geek. I've seen you say that a few times. <laughs> you had a couple data scientists working for you at the number one talent agency back in 2015, which was still pretty early. And one thing I read is that you've said you've had a lot of jobs over the last, maybe this is outdated by a year or two, but 25 years. But in some ways, you feel that you've had the same job for 25 years, which is to tell the story that's important to you, to speak your truth, to try and get inclusion I hope you don't mind me saying you were were adopted by, as you said, two blonde people, but obviously (laughs) you did not lose touch with your culture or your heritage. It's what you've spent a lot Mm -hmm. of time on. So has that been the core theme of every job you've had?
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting being adopted means you kind of live with one foot in two cultures often. And I think that it would, it gave me A great ability to sort of see things from multiple perspectives. But I've had one, you know, one career and one mission. And I feel like, you know, it's my North Star, right? Because I always think, and I don't have kids, but I always think, you know, like our kids or our grandkids are going to ask us one day, what was it like back when you were a minority? Because if you just look at the demographic projections, sure, especially in California in California we're way, yeah we're past that right yeah. and to be able to say like hey i helped make storytelling a little more accessible and a little more equitable and make our industry a little bit better that that for me would be a very satisfying thing to be able to say i want to have impact on my world and i want to have impact on my industry and on this company and i think that it's really helpful because i'm by nature an optimist. Like I believe that human beings and organizations are capable of great change. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be here.
0: Sure. And what would, so you said there were three movies at the beginning that kind of changed your life and made you move here and get into the business you got into. What advice would you give to the 22 year old Christy Latino or person of color sitting at home right now that is intrigued by this industry and wants to get a start? What should they do?
1: So I think they should start by picking up their phone and telling a story Mm -hmm. and then reading every script you can get your hand on. By the way, they are all on the internet, which I didn't have, you know, (laughs) when I was a kid, meaning like being able to sort of access that. And then start, you know, when you start looking at things that you like and you see a movie and like pause and look at how they framed it and look at how they edited this and look at how this all comes together and, and how the music makes you feel. You know, when you start like taking it apart, because of technology, nobody can tell me I can't be a storyteller. Mm-hmm. If you have a phone, you can be a storyteller. And so what I'm excited about is that technology is in the hands of everyone now. And, and everyone has a story. Everyone has a story in them.
0: And just to show the power of these stories, so you and I have both, for similar reasons, had the opportunity to meet Malala.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And
0: my understanding is that she has said that the show Ugly Betty helped give her the confidence to speak her voice.
1: Yeah, I know. Isn't that like, it's so funny because I think, again, you know, a lot of what we do in this business can be perceived as really silly, but I remember... You know, I stayed up late, I think, you know, because we were going to meet her. And I read her autobiography, which, by the way, is great. And, you know, if you have a young person in your life, it's particularly great because, you know, she's a 16 year old, right? When she's shot by the Taliban. And one of the things that's remarkable when you read the book is that she mentions the TV show Ugly Betty a number of times. This is a Nobel Prize winner. I'm pretty sure she's the only Nobel Prize winner who's like, let me tell you about American sitcoms, right?
0: But wasn't Selma Hayek involved in that show? Yeah. So yeah.
1: Selma Hayek was was a producer, and after I read the book, I emailed Selma, and it was you know it was the middle of the night, and Selma was in London, and I said, oh my gosh, did you have any idea? I worked with with Selma at CIA, so I said, did you have any idea that Malala was a huge fan of Ugly Betty? You know, she mentions it in the show, and I mean, I mean, in, the, in her book, and yeah. she she says things like. Maybe I want to be a journalist because I could use my voice like Betty. And in another place, she talks about the fact that, you know, the, the the Taliban is coming to her town and they're going to burn all the Western entertainment and she hopes they don't burn her ugly Betty DVDs that she and her friend got in Islamabad. You know, here's this young woman in the Swat Valley in Pakistan. Right. And I, I sent someone this note and I was like, you have no idea that there's a little valley in Pakistan with this young woman watching this and getting – courage from it which is just like unbelievable to consider and so you can't ever know the full impact and the reach of your work and particularly in the business that we're in but I, in one of my more satisfying career moments I actually got to introduce Malala to Salma when Salma oh. came to LA the following week
0: and the other thing we learned about your life that's so different than my life is if you call Salma Hayek she answers the phone and if I call Salma Hayek she calls the police <laughs> So
1: she's actually very if she only knew you, she would pick up
0: quickly. well she's gorgeous and creative and beautiful, so it's nice of you to say, but she would see me as an old white dude
1: <laughs> <laughs> no she's she's like the loveliest person she really is. so y- can we talk about tech for a minute?
0: Yeah, yeah, I was just about to go there.
1: you know so whenever I feel bad about the lack of diversity in entertainment, mm-hmm. I can always think about tech and I feel better because. Tech is so much worse in terms of uh, of ethnic diversity. Why is that? I mean, I, I and I don't want to hear the, like, pipeline thing anymore because I, I was fascinated to see, I think it's about 40,000 black and Latino college graduates every year are engineering math or computer science. That's like 200,000 people over the last five years. Right. If you got 200,000 people, like the industry should be looking different. And I, I know the math of the denominator being very large and, sure. and, you know, adding 200,000 people. But I'm like, gosh, that feels like there's not the urgency. Did it change this last year with George Floyd? Did, it, did the urgency change?
0: I would say I think people's intent changed, but their mm-hmm. behavior has not yet changed. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. This is the yearning for transformation, exactly. but not ready to
0: change. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. And I do what I can in the companies I invest in or the funds that I invest in or the things I get involved in to try and play as much of a part. But I'd be dishonest if I told you I thought there was real transformation happening in tech. I don't think there is yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much evidence now, though. About... There's some
0: funds, though. There are some venture capital funds. Yeah. I've actually become a venture partner in one called A-Crew Capital that's completely focused on diversity. If you look at the founding team, it's Mostly non-white males. I actually joked when they when they came to me. I said, I don't think I qualify because I'm an over-middle-aged white guy. But if you look at the team, I'm one of maybe 15 investors, and maybe there's only two or three white men. All the rest are not just women, but one of the founders, Teresa Gao, is actually a first generation American. So we're seeing this start to happen in Silicon Valley.
1: I just talked to the folks at Softbank who have a fund. And you know, there's yeah, there's a lot now, which is exciting because I feel like again. You know, if you believe that talent is evenly distributed, but the access or opportunity hasn't been, you know, those efforts are going to attract and uncover people who thought maybe I could never have a VC conversation. Maybe I need to bootstrap this with some family and, you know, whatever as best I can. So I think that's exciting and going to be good for the business. I guess I thought that people would be moved by reason, Mm -hmm. meaning like we've seen the Boards of directors, right, and a lot of pension funds saying, "I, you know, I don't want to invest in companies whose boards don't have a single woman on them anymore." Right. Which is seems like a very low threshold, but apparently knocks out a whole bunch of companies.
0: Or Net- Netflix saying they're not going to go to the Golden Globes.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And it will still take longer than you or I would want.
1: I think that is absolutely right. <laughs> Again, human evolution's not as fast as I'd like.
0: Yes. So when I asked you at the beginning about the three people you'd want to have dinner with, and you said the third would be Michelle because you wanted somebody to pinch you, and that was a hypothetical, like, living or alive. Obviously, you chose some people not living. But what, in all the things you've done, maybe it was the Malala Selma Hayek moment you just talked about, but... (laughs) What for you comes to mind as a pinch me moment where you did want to call Michelle or your parents or somebody and say, I can't believe I was just in the room with these people talking about this thing?
1: So the first thing I think of is actually a really embarrassing story.
0: Then I want to hear it. I want to hear it.
1: Okay. So one of my law school classmates was hosting a fundraiser for Barack Obama fairly early on In the campaign, I don't think he he, they hadn't had the Iowa primary yet, and I had come back. I'd been in Mexico for work, and I came back and I went to this fundraiser really to support my friend so that he would have a successful event. Not be—I mean, I really liked Obama, but I didn't think he had a chance of winning, like so many people. Sure. And I came into this crowded reception, and again, it was in a smallish room because it wasn't—you know—he wasn't that big a deal yet. (laughs) but it's a crowded room. We're in a kind of a smallish room and it's pretty crowded. And my friend says, this is Christy. She could be really key to helping you unlock the Latino vote, understanding the consumer and all this stuff. And so I smiled at him and he leaned down and I think, I don't know if it means because i just come from Mexico. I stood on my tiptoes and I kissed him (laughs) and like, like on the cheek. Just like, because I thought he was greeting me when he leaned down and it turns out he was leaning down just so he could hear me (laughs) because he's quite tall and I'm not. And so my friend looks at me like, what is wrong with you? Why did you kiss him? I was like, I don't know, but... So anyway, I get engaged in the campaign and I help with turning out Latino celebrities to campaign and, you know, work, turn out the Latino vote. And so a couple of months late, fast forward a couple months later, and I worked with George Lopez, who is a client and a great guy. Brilliant
0: comedian.
1: Brilliant comedian. And he'd agreed to introduce... Senator Obama at this rally in Austin, Texas, and I made the mistake of telling George this story. He goes, oh, you met him? And I was like, yeah, I met him, but it didn't go over. I kind of, you know. And George Lopez, you should never tell a comedian like your most embarrassing story. Because immediately when he sees Obama, he tells him, he's like, hey, you remember the kissing band in here? You know? And he was like, oh, yeah. And actually, it was really sweet. Then Senator Obama leaned down and kissed me on the cheek. Uh oh so it had kind of a nice story but that was a really you know when you said like a pinch me moment yeah uh, that was like a pinch me moment yeah I mean in a bad way like please tell me I didn't just do that
0: yeah well Christy thank you so much I know how busy you are for making time for me today even more importantly for our friendship of almost 25 years not quite yet yeah. I really appreciate Happy you as a friend and, up. yes yes and taking the time out today to talk with me I appreciate it take care thanks so much to Christy for taking time today here are my final thoughts. I learned a lot in my discussion with Christy, so much so that actually recording these final thoughts after re-listening to the episode a couple of times, because there were some really profound things in there. You know, she talked about Warner Media moving from a wholesaler to a retailer, which means they now have a direct relationship with the consumer, primarily through HBO Max, but also through Cartoon Network and TNT and all the other companies and subdivisions under Warner Media, Warner Brothers, et cetera. And when Christy explained to me that it's not the right thing to do to have more diverse stories, more diverse talent, but it was a smart thing to do because the global audience is not mostly white. It really, and I'm most embarrassed to say this, but it really opened my eyes. It was like, oh, here I am in the businesses that I'm involved in and the projects I'm involved in, I'm trying to hire people as co- of color as much as I can. I really am putting an effort into it. It's why I joined Crew Capital because they are focused on that. But I've been doing it, I hate to say this, because I thought it was the right thing to do. And it wasn't until today that I realized it's the smart thing to do. And that was so eye-opening, and I was so thankful that Christy shared that. And I think that's really eye-opening, and I hope any of you in tech and media take that to heart as well. One of my favorite sayings is, show me you love me, don't tell me you love me. And what I mean by that is words are easy, but action is hard. And if you wanna show true impact and intent, action is important. One of the firms I'm very proud to be associated with, a venture capital firm called Acrew Capital, A-C-R-E-W capital.com, was founded by five people, only one of which was a white male, which is extremely rare in the venture capital industry. They are extremely focused on backing female CEOs, people of color, transgender. They put their words into action. And if you're interested in working with a VC firm that's truly focused on diversity and shows it with their action, not just their words, I highly recommend Acrew Capital. Again, that's acrewcapital.com. I wanna thank my producer, AJ Mosley, my chief of staff, Lily Ramadi, who helps me prepare for these interviews, even with the people I know. And also Ness Sabadoff smith for the audio engineering I know there's a lot of podcasts out there. I know there's a lot of attention for your time. I really, really work hard to try and learn something, not just myself, but for you, especially if you're in the technology industry, the entertainment industry, and especially, I know I said that twice, but especially if you're involved. I'm Richard Walpert, and please stay tuned for next week's episode of Tech vs. Media. From Kirko Media, media for your mind.